You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Trading Rulers for Rifles, the School Teachers Regiment, the story of the 151st Pennsylvania. I know not how men could have fought more desperately, exhibited more coolness, or contested the field with more determined courage, wrote Lieutenant Colonel George McFarland when describing the conduct of the 151st Pennsylvania as they covered the retreat of the battered Iron Brigade and singularly faced a Confederate onslaught on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. These men, although brave indeed, were not battle-hardened West Point graduates. They were school teachers. The 151st Pennsylvania Regiment was organized in September of 1862, and its ten companies congregated at Camp Curtin in Harrisburg that October. The recruits had all signed up for a volunteer service term of nine months. In Company D alone, there were more than 60 school teachers, and their significant and surprising numeric concentration earned the company and the regiment the sobriquet of the Teachers' Regiment after the war. Many of these volunteers were teachers from the McAllisterville Academy in Juniata County, along with their principal turned company commander, Lieutenant Colonel George McFarland. On November 28th, the regiment was ordered to Washington and then proceeded to Arlington Heights. On December 3rd, the regiment moved with Colonel Frederick Dutassi's brigade to Union Mills, Virginia, where it was placed on duty. Now in enemy territory, Colonel Dutassi and his successor, General Alexander Hayes, strictly instructed and drilled the 151st Pennsylvania while always looking out for an attack by John Singleton Mosby's elusive raiders. In February 1863, the regiment was transferred to Belle Plaine, where it was brigaded with the 121st, 135th, and the 142nd Pennsylvania regiments to form the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Division of the 1st Corps, commanded by General John Fulton Reynolds. The harsh winter conditions left many soldiers ill, convalesced, or dead. Before marching to the battlefield at Chancellorsville, the 1st Corps moved to Franklin's Crossing, where it encountered its first taste of battle by way of vigorous shelling from the enemy on the opposite shore. On May 2, 1863, the Corps made a forced march to United States Ford, and after crossing, the 151st was summoned to the front to occupy the line on the mostly inactive 1st Corps' right flank. The regiment guarded the crucial Rapidan River crossing at United States Ford, but saw little action for the rest of the battle. After the Union defeat, there ensued a bitter confrontation about how to best use the Army of the Potomac to meet the threat of a Confederate invasion of the North. General Joseph Hooker resigned his command and was immediately replaced by Major General George Gordon Meade. Thus, the next destination for the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers would be a part of the land familiar to all of them, the crossroads town of Gettysburg. The march to Gettysburg commenced on the 12th of June. The right wing of the army, composed of the 1st and 11th Corps under General John Reynolds, making a forced march of 105 miles in three days, throwing itself suddenly between Robert E. Lee's army, which was moving north through Shenandoah Valley, and Washington. At Broad Bun, they halted for the enemy to develop his plans. Reynolds then hastened forward to Middleburg, where he again interposed between the enemy and the cities of Baltimore and Washington. As the enemy pushed on into Pennsylvania, the 1st Brigade, now commanded by Colonel Chapman Biddle, arrived at the quiet 
bucolic town of Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st, 1863, and took position on the extreme left flank of the First Corps. The 467 men of the 151st Pennsylvania held the left of the brigade line. The regiment moved to the top of McPherson's Ridge and remained there until the afternoon, when it was detached as a reserve unit and moved to occupy the grounds next to Lutheran Theological Seminary directly behind the Iron Brigade and the rest of Colonel Biddle's 1st Brigade as they fiercely fought against the North Carolinians of General J. Johnston Pettigrew's Brigade. Around 2.30 p.m., a gap opened between the Northern Brigades, endangering the entire Union position, and the 151st was ordered to advance. Closing the broken line, the 151st had not even gotten into position before men began to fall. The Iron Brigade, having borne the brunt of the battle for hours, withdrew, exposing the right flank of the 151st. The regiments on the left were likewise overpowered and, one by one, they were forced back until the 151st Pennsylvania stood alone to resist the enemy's front and flank fire. The smoke was blinding, and the crack of the rifles was deafening as the opposing lines traded volleys at a mere 20 yards apart. Finally, when more than half of the regiment had fallen, the order was given to withdraw, rallying at a rail entrenchment by the seminary. Fresh Confederate regiments, South Carolinians under Colonel Abner Perrin, launched an assault. The 14th South Carolina hit the 151st position fiercely in an attempt to finish off the flank of the 1st Corps. While aggressively attacking the numerically superior force, Lieutenant Colonel McFarland received severe wounds in both legs. With their commander severely wounded and the line beginning to fracture, the 151st retreated towards town. Only 92 survivors regrouped on Cemetery Ridge that night. By morning of July 2nd, the total had risen to 113 men. Out of the 467 men brought to the field, 337 men were killed, wounded, or captured, the second highest loss of any Union regiment at Gettysburg, 72% casualties. Lieutenant Colonel McFarland survived, but his left leg was amputated below the knee. Despite these heavy losses, the remaining troops rallied and participated in the repulse of Pickett's charge on July 3rd alongside the 80th New York on the Union left flank, maintaining, quote, sharp fire, end quote, against the enemy. Under the Confederate retreat, the 151st rejoined the brigade near General Meade's headquarters. They briefly participated in the pursuit of Lee before their nine-month term of engagement expired, and the remaining soldiers were mustered out of service on July 27, 1863. But was this terrible sacrifice in vain? The tenacity of the 151st ensured the safe withdrawal of the 1st Corps on July 1st and still rallied, despite heavy losses, to participate in Pickett's charge July 3rd. Due to the tenacity of the 151st Pennsylvania, the 26th North Carolina, the regiment that directly faced the 151st as they covered the retreat of the 1st Corps, suffered the greatest total loss of any regiment in the Battle of Gettysburg. The 11th North Carolina, the regiment that flanked the 151st before they retreated to the seminary, takes the place of the second greatest total loss of any regiment. The men of the school teacher's regiment stood fast in the face of danger and death, critically ensuring the safety of the Union Army during the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. General Abner Doubleday, the successor of General Reynolds as commander of the First Corps, lauded the heroic actions of the schoolteacher's regiment. Quote, 
At Gettysburg, they won, under the brave McFarland, an imperishable fame. They defended the left front of the First Corps against vastly superior numbers, covered its retreat against the overwhelming masses of the enemy at the seminary west of the town, and enabled me, by their determined resistance, to withdraw the Corps in comparative safety. This was on the first day. In the crowning charge of the third day of the battle, the shattered remnants of the 151st Pennsylvania flung themselves upon the front of the rebel column. I believe they saved the First Corps and were among the chief instruments to save the Army of the Potomac and the country from unimaginable disaster. End quote. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. I've just read for you an article at battlefields.org, a property of American Battlefield Trust. Marcy Schwartz is the author. And the topic might seem obscure to those of you who have not been listening for a long time. But as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I am the great, great, great grandson of Lieutenant Colonel George Fisher McFarland, who led the 151st Pennsylvania at the Battle of Gettysburg. That, to me, is probably the most compelling story I have of any of my ancestors. It's the most intriguing to me. It's the most fascinating. It grips my imagination. And when I think about it and when I read about it, I feel like a 10-year-old boy because it is so heroic. It is so larger than life in my imagination. And to think of having a connection to the Battle of Gettysburg, to a man who led troops in decisive action at the Battle of Gettysburg, arguably the most famous battle in the Civil War, who led at a decisive point school teachers of all people. Who would imagine that school teachers would make such excellent soldiers, or presumably they made excellent soldiers because of how they stuck in there. A little bit of backstory here as far as left flanks go. Historically, when men have fought in hand-to-hand combat, think hoplites, think soldiers with swords and spears and things like that, your left flank is the weakest part of your force. Let's say you've got forces arrayed in units across the battlefield. You make your battle line, the enemy makes their battle line. Most men are right-handed. And so if you put right-handed men on the leftmost flank, their fighting arm is on the inside, whereas the enemy they're facing has a fighting arm on the right side. So your left is facing their right, your right is facing their left. And so historically, with regards to, let's say, hoplite battles in ancient Greece, you would have the two battle lines, yours and your enemies, circling one another as their right flank tries to smash your left flank, your right flank tries to smash their left flank. And a flanking maneuver 
and military tactics is, according to Wikipedia, a movement of an armed force around an enemy's forces side or flank to achieve an advantageous position over it. Flanking is useful because a force's fighting strength is typically concentrated in its front, therefore to circumvent an opposing force's front and attack its flank is to concentrate one's own offense in the area where the enemy is least able to concentrate defense. Now, how precisely this mechanic changes when you're talking about men with firearms that is less known to me, but at least with regards to hand-to-hand combat, the general rule throughout history was that you try to fold your enemy's left flank with your right flank. And if you can do that, if you can break the enemy's left, then you can envelop the core, the center of their forces, and you're fighting them on more than one side. You're fighting them to the front, and you're fighting them on their left and you just close them in you wrap them up but with regards to the battle of gettysburg from what i've read there was a failure to take a position that would have been of great strategic interest to the northern army to the union army on the left flank and this position should have been taken it should have been ordered taken more decisively by a higher up. And yet what we find is without that position having been taken, the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers Regiment found itself in a very precarious position where the fighting is the fiercest. And they in turn went up against a unit from North Carolina or two units from North Carolina who by battle's end had the greatest casualty rate of any regiment on either side during the Battle of Gettysburg. That's really something. That's really, really something. What that tells me, or at least what I speculate from that, not being an expert on it, just having read and thought about it for a while, What that tells me is that the Confederate forces expected to fold up the Northern Army on the left, and they sent the best and the brightest, the best equipped, who were these gentlemen from North Carolina, they sent their best equipped, their best fed against the Northern left, and those guys ended up getting their butts handed to them. Now, to be fair, the school teachers regiment also took heavy, heavy casualties. 72% casualty rate is ridiculous. That's a lot. You're no longer combat effective when you've lost your colonel. And I happen to know from other things I've read on this regiment of my great, great, great grandfather, this Regiment had lost its colonel and its surgeon. Both men became sick, and they were sent to Washington, D.C. for 30 days to recover. And so George McFarland finds himself, lieutenant colonel, in charge, commanding the regiment. And here he is, wounded in both legs, severely wounded, 
wounded to the point in the one leg that it had to be amputated with a 72% casualty rate. And yet they still participate in Pickett's Charge on July 3rd. July 1st, the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, they helped to hold the line so that the First Corps can make an orderly retreat, a tactical retreat, instead of being routed, instead of being folded up as the Confederate force was attempting to do. And this might not be obvious, but if the 151st had routed, if they had broken, if they had tucked tail and run and not stood their ground and not squared off against North Carolina, the first Corps could have very easily been crushed. And in turn, like a domino effect, the Army of the Potomac might have lost the Battle of Gettysburg. They might have lost their combat effectiveness in general. If they had been folded up on the left, dominoes would have fallen, and the whole Civil War might have concluded in a very different way. You think about these guys having been put in a position leading up to the Battle of Gettysburg where they're supposed to get between Robert E. Lee and an invasion of the North by Confederate armies. So Robert E. Lee wants to go from playing defense to playing offense. And if he had succeeded in folding up the Army of the Potomac, capturing it or eliminating its ability to effectively fight future battles, nothing presumably would have stood between him and a campaign in the North, which might have resulted in the Confederate States of America winning the Civil War, suing for peace, a divided country. We might have two Americas instead of one. There might have been two Americas or there might have been one America, and that one America would have been centered in the South instead of centered in the North. And so you might ask yourself, okay, well, what is the point? Well, the, the point, in my view, is that a single man can make an outsized difference by standing his ground. A single man even if he takes great personal costs, even if he loses his life or in my great, great, great grandfather's case, a limb, he can play a decisive outsized role. And just like having failed to stand fast would have caused a domino effect. If McFarland had broken himself psychologically, if he had given up, if he had tucked tail and run, if he'd lost his nerve, lost his cool, so also the 151st would have. And if the 151st would have, the first core would have been routed, killed or captured, broken, and in turn, the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army, might have been routed, broken, killed or captured. And so also, the Union cause, and so also the emancipation of 
slaves. And so also everything else that we know of from American history, could a divided states of America have helped to turn the tide in World War I? Could a divided states of America have played the decisive role in World War II? Could a divided states of America have stood up to the USSR during the Cold War? There's all of these things which Lieutenant Colonel McFarland might have had no idea of, or maybe he did. Not in specifics, but generally speaking, as a principal, as a principal of McAllisterville Academy, he did know a thing or two. And as the descendant of clan chiefs and barons of Clan McFarlane in Scotland, before his own ancestors had emigrated to the United States, he perhaps knew a thing or two about his own family legacy, how many of his ancestors had fought in decisive battles against the English, against Vikings. Perhaps he knew a thing or two about his own heritage. The funny thing, as I consider all of this, is what a weight and a responsibility I feel being descended from someone like that. And you could look at it two ways. You could hear me talking about all this and you could think, well, Garrett, that's enough. Stop bragging. Stop boasting about your illustrious ancestor. And I'm not saying I'm the only one who has someone great or someone I think is great anyway in the family tree. Lots of other folks have plenty of great men, I'm sure. But I think it's important to know where we came from. I think it's important to know who's gone before. I think this is part of why, though independent, am conservative, because I think that a legacy like this should be conserved. We should remember such men, and we should study them, and we should study what their good effects were and what their bad effects were. I really do wish that I knew more about my ancestors, and I would love someday, Lord willing, to make a study to understand these things better. I would love to be able to dig in deeper on the personal stories as much as can be known, to learn it, to have something to pass down to my own children, my own grandchildren, my own great and great great and great 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 grandchildren. And I don't mean just my ancestors' stories, but the fact that I compiled the stories of my ancestors. I want that to be known to my descendants and for them to be thankful, like I'm thankful to George Fisher McFarland. I'm thankful for a legacy like that and that it didn't stop there either because you could say, you've just been injured, George. You've just been injured in both legs. You've played a decisive role in leading the school teacher's regiment to defend the left flank to keep it from breaking in a disorderly fashion. You've done enough. 
Now you can retire, lick your wounds, live out the rest of your days in peace, hopefully. But he didn't stop there. Yes, they were all mustered out. They were no longer combat effective. They had done enough, the 151st. But George McFarland, Lieutenant Colonel George McFarland, went on to make McAllisterville Academy into an orphanage. He made an orphanage out of this school. When I look up McAllisterville Academy, I find this page for the Juniata County, Pennsylvania Historical Society. And I'll just read this for you as well, since we're doing some history here today. It began as the Lost Creek Valley Academy in 1855 and offered secondary education for those interested in entering the teaching profession. In 1858, the stockholders sold the three-story brick building and property to Professor George F. McFarland, then principal of the Freeburg Academy in Snyder County, Pennsylvania. Quote, he immediately initiated improvements and enlarged the accommodations. The range of subjects offered included mathematics, science, music, language, art, and physical education. The academic year was composed of two semesters of 22 weeks. The campus encompassed five acres with spacious buildings, complete with a gymnasium. The student body varied in number from 43 to as many as 70 students from all parts of Pennsylvania and from other states including Illinois and Ohio. In 1862, after the defeat of Union troops at the Second Battle of Bull Run, President Lincoln issued a call for more troops. George McFarland answered this call and, after considerable effort, raised a company of men, many of them teachers from the academy. They were designated Company D of the 151st Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers and were mustered in for nine months' service. After regimental training, they were assigned to the 1st Army Corps and joined the Army, which was stationed near Fredericksburg, Virginia. Though they played only a minor role in the Battle of Chancellorsville, at Gettysburg they suffered the highest loss of any regiment in the Union Army during the battle. McFarland suffered serious injuries to both legs at Gettysburg, which resulted in the amputation of his right leg and the permanent disability of his left, from which he never fully recovered. However, he returned to reopen the academy. During this same time, the Pennsylvania legislature, after many debates, passed an act accepting from the Pennsylvania Railroad $50,000 given for, quote, the education and maintenance of destitute orphan children of deceased soldiers and sailors, end quote. The following November of 1864, the Academy, at the request of Dr. Burroughs, newly appointed as superintendent of soldiers' orphans, became the first Soldiers' Orphan School, effective November 3, 1864. Quote, To accommodate the growing number of children, the Academy built a kitchen with a large range, added a cistern, enlarged the dining room, and procured new desks and sewing machines. When it became apparent that the number of orphans to be provided for was larger than first anticipated and that better accommodations had to be secured, 20 acres of land were purchased and an additional brick building was erected. It was larger than the original academy building, was four stories high with a finished attic. The cornerstone was laid with interesting and appropriate ceremonies on July 23, 1866." The McAllisterville Soldiers' 
Orphan School continued operation until 1899. On August 26, 1937, a tablet was erected on the site of the McAllisterville Academy to honor Colonel George Fisher McFarland and Company D of the 151st Regiment of Pennsylvania Volunteers, as well as to recognize the site of the 1st Pennsylvania Soldiers Orphan School. The Juniata County Historical Society and the Society of the McAllisterville Soldiers Orphan School erected the table. So, there you have it. In other words, he was not content. He was not content to have done what he did in leading men at the Battle of Gettysburg. He went on to do yet more. He went on to take care of orphans. And it makes me think of what we read in the book of James in the New Testament. James 1.27 in the English Standard Version. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now I'm not saying here that the only way you can do a godly thing is to take care of orphans. And I'm not saying that someone is necessarily godly just because they do take care of orphans, but I am saying the fact that George Fisher McFarland not only served as he did during Gettysburg, but then disabled in both legs, he went on to spend the rest of his life taking care of orphans. That makes him all the more a hero in my mind. And that's a tall order when you think of living even several generations removed somewhat in the shadow of a figure like that that's a tall order last night as a little bit of an aside but not really because this is why George Fisher McFarland is on my mind this morning I sent off my manuscript my book to a literary agent in Oregon by the last name of McGregor. I sent off my book because after nine months, book sales have not been what I would have expected or hoped. And that is almost entirely or entirely due to my not being very good at marketing, particularly my own work. I am a writer and I'm not a marketing specialist. And quite frankly, I don't know that I can be as good of a writer as I want to be if I work on trying to become good at marketing. And yet there are people who are good at marketing and they're not necessarily good at writing. And so why not reach out to some of those folks who are good at marketing and see if they think I'm good at writing and moreover that they could market my book. But along with the manuscript, one of the things in the submission guidelines on the website for this literary agency was that they wanted a biography of myself as the author. When you submit your book or an outline of what your book is about, who the audience is, what you think the market is for this book, what's unique about your book, they want to know who are you? What qualifies you to write on this topic? Why would anybody want to read a book about this 
by you specifically. And so not to boast, but to say the truth, the fact, which is relevant, whether I realize, fully appreciate the extent to which it's relevant, the fact that I am descended from George F. McFarland does bear weight on the way that I approach this topic. I think very often we don't realize the influence that our ancestors have for good or for ill. There are certainly ways that I've been influenced by my ancestors for ill. I have no doubt of that. There are certainly proclivities which I do well to moderate by God's grace, according to his word. But in this case, the courage, the strength of character, the conviction that children should be taken care of and not left to their own devices, that children who are orphans in some measure should be taken care of, that conviction, I think, comes to me honestly from my ancestor, George Fisher McFarland. I think that George Fisher McFarland, having the ideas that he did, having the convictions that he did with regards to the education of children, with regards to the need for men to be willing to fight for their country, to answer the call, to lead, to hold fast, to stand their ground, even at great personal cost. I think that conviction came down to me from my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, my grandmother, my mother. My grandmother, McFarlane, at least her maiden name was McFarlane, married name Renew, she was a school teacher for 30 years. And I wonder to myself if in any measure she became a school teacher because she knew that her great-grandfather had been a principal, had run an orphanage, had led men in battle at Gettysburg. I wonder, although she's gone now and I can't ask her, I wonder if her decision to become a school teacher and to be a school teacher for 30 years after being a Rosie the Riveter during World War II, I wonder if Nancy Sarah McFarland or Nancy Sarah Renew was influenced by the fact that her great-grandfather had been head of an orphanage, had seen to the caring for orphans, had been a professor, had been a teacher of teachers prior to the Civil War. I wonder if that influenced her. In turn, my mother was a piano teacher. My grandmother, teaching in the public schools even several decades ago, did not want her own children to be in the public schools. Although they were at first, my uncle Rick, my aunt Mary, were eventually taken out of public schools there in Milton, Florida. And she put them in Christian schools instead, in part because my uncle Rick was being harassed, was being discriminated against because his own father was a disabled World War II vet. Now, why was he disabled? Because he had nervous breakdown after nervous breakdown after seeing what he saw in World War II. He was wounded in a different way from my third great-grandfather, McFarland. 
but my grandmother supported the family by being a school teacher, public school teacher. And at a certain point, she confronted a principal who told her that he thought my uncle Rick was mentally deficient because of his father having been broken by World War II. And my grandmother told him he was flat out wrong. She would pull her son and her daughter out. And then when my mother came of age, my mom was the baby of the family. When my mom came of age, she never went to public school at all to begin with. She went to Pensacola Christian from little on up. My grandmother told me before she died, before she passed last year, she was so proud of my cousins and I who are homeschooling because I think she realized that for the same reason she wasn't willing to send her children into the public schools decades ago and for even more reasons now, the public schools in America were no place for children. I think my writing, and this is why we homeschool, was very much influenced by the fact that my mother was a piano teacher. My grandmother was a public school teacher for 30 years. My uncle Rick is a nationally recognized award-winning educator himself. He's received an award from former first lady, Laura Bush. My great, great, great grandfather was a teacher of teachers and he led moreover the school teachers regiment at the battle of Gettysburg in decisive action. They took heavy, heavy losses, 72% casualty rate. He became disabled in the leg that was left and he lost the other leg and that didn't stop him from investing the rest of his life. So if that didn't stop Colonel George Fisher McFarland, what's my excuse? What's your excuse? But alas, it's a Sunday morning. I need to go. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.